Amen. Well, happy Easter. Every Lord's Day is a celebration of the Resurrection Day, but we chose that hymn particularly because as we continue in the Gospel of John, we are in John chapter 20, and I'll be reading the first 18 verses. These are the words of God. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabbani, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. This is God's word. Let's ask his blessing. Father, with your word before us, with Christ now reigning over us, with your spirit here among us and at work in us, minister this word to us. Enlighten minds, turn hearts, revive and restore faith, or grant it to those who do not yet believe. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. One of the arguments about the resurrection and whether or not we believe the resurrection, people have all these um, uh, excuses for not believing that Jesus actually rose from the dead and try to make the case for it. All kinds of lawyers and all kinds of other people have tried to make the point that historically speaking on the basis of evidence, there's more evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead than there is any other historical evidence anywhere near that kind of time 2,000 years ago. Uh, and, but, but we don't even have to go, we don't have to go to all the other evidence who look right in the scriptures and see this to be the case. Because one of the wonderful things about John's recollection of the resurrection of Jesus as you read through this gospel was how the disciples never thought, it never occurred to them to concoct a crazy story about a bodily resurrection. Quite the opposite. They had to be convinced of it themselves. They had to be convinced that a resurrection had actually taken place. Years later, Paul would write an argument for our, future, um, for our future bodily resurrection that all of us would be raised from the dead, and he did so based on the fact that Jesus was resurrected. In other words, he said, he said this is true. Jesus rose from the dead, and therefore I'm going to prove all these other things as well. 
He didn't even try to, um, to, to prove the resurrection. He doesn't argue for the resurrection. He argues from the resurrection. Um, I, let me just read you that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, and, and it's worth noting and thinking about as we go to this passage in John. Paul writes these words. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen, and now he's going to list these eyewitnesses, that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. In other words, go ask them. But some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. And then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. And he goes on, but, but now you see that this is the if of the then, of the if-then statement, if this is true. So in verse 12, he will say, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, which he has, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? How, how is it that some of you would say that there's no resurrection for the rest of us? Or if you look down verse 20, he says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then he goes on to argue how the rest of us also will fall asleep. We'll, our bodies will be put in the grave. But one day there will be this great resurrection. They were, eye, they were eyewitnesses. Um, th those who uh, lived in that, uh, in that time when Christ rose from the dead and, and those who John is talking about in his gospel, they were either eyewitnesses or they could speak to the eyewitnesses. You could go and hear their testimony firsthand. Well, now, we have something even greater. We have something even greater. We have the account of his resurrection from the inspired word of God. And, and some of you think, no, that's not better. But it is better because there were people who saw that Jesus rose from the dead and they didn't believe. It wasn't enough to see with your own eyes, not to see in a, in a particular kind of way. There are different ways of seeing. And actually, John is going to put those different ways of seeing right in the text that we've looked at. There, there are ways to see but not believe. And then there's a way to see and come to believe. And that seeing can be something that takes place in the preached word and the work of God's spirit. So we have an account of, the res of his resurrection from the inspired word of God. And just like Mary Magdalene, we come to faith when we hear Jesus speak to us through that word. When he speaks to us through this word, then we hear just as Mary Magdalene heard her name called. In Romans 10, 8, um, Paul writes, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. It's right there. It's right here before you. It's, it's right on the lips of the preacher. It's right before you in your mouth to take. And then he goes on and says, How then shall they call on him whom they have, have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? But they will hear him. And how shall they hear without a preacher? That's how they will hear. And how shall they preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. In other words, when, we are, when we're preaching this word, when you're reading this word, when you're sharing this word, when you're speaking this word, when God decides by his spirit to speak this word into the hearts and minds of someone who is in the dark and unbelief, then it is just like that passage that, we, that I read when all of a sudden Jesus, who just looks like a gardener, she can't tell who he is, 
calls her Mary. And immediately he knows, she knows, that's Jesus. And he is risen from the dead. That's what happens. That's what happens when the word is given in power, the spirit, to someone whose eyes are darkened, who cannot see, who does not know. The word of God declares Jesus Christ and his resurrection and all the implications of it. And one of the reasons that you are called, that, that we are called and have been called for centuries now to gather together every Lord's Day to hear God's word preached is not just so you can go find somebody who can give a good lecture. It is to hear Jesus speak to us. It is to hear Jesus speak by his Holy Spirit into our hearts and minds and souls to transform us, to, to cleanse our minds, to renew our minds, to keep us from being pressed into the mold of the world around us, to be transformed, to be a different kind of people. That's why we come and hear the word preached. That's why you also, throughout the week, should be taking in the word, taking in the word of God in your own studies, in your own readings, in your own devotions. You take that in and you let, you let the words that have been preached, you let the words that you've heard, the words that we sing in the Psalms echo themselves throughout the, all the rest of the word that you're reading and studying and memorizing, meditating on, questioning and looking into, and God uses that. You meet Jesus then. This is how we meet Jesus by his Holy Spirit in a more powerful way than even Mary did and even the eyewitnesses did in those days. Because Jesus, as John tells us at the beginning of this gospel, Jesus is the word. He is the word made flesh. He is the word made flesh that dwelt among us. And he is the word made flesh that was, that was crucified, dead and buried, raised, and by his word sent his spirit so he dwells with you. This word dwells with and in you. He was that word that was spoken and all things were created. And he is that word that is spoken and everything he speaks to is recreated. Everything he speaks to is made brand new. That's what this glorious, that's how this glorious gospel of John is concluding. Now, John, how many times have I said this? John chooses a number of circumstances and details that other, the, the synoptics do not. And so when, we, when he does that, we have to say, okay, why? What's going on here? What is the emphasis that John wants us to see? Well, one of the things is, is the people that he chooses for us to, to engage with. And we have here an empty tomb, Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John particularly. And in these last two chapters, John will focus on these three in particular, along with Thomas later, and then the apostles, but we'll spend a lot of time with Peter and John particularly. All four gospels note that it was the first day of the week. I want you to notice that in verse 20, and now on the first day of the week, and, and every single gospel writer wants you to know that, that when this took place, it was on Sunday. Sunday is the first day of the week. Um, in, in the Jewish mindset, it was in, in the Roman mindset too. The first day of the week was Sunday. We think of it as, we think of the first day of the week as Monday, don't we? We think we're still here in the middle of the, in the, in, in the, in the, in the kind of the end of the week. We call it the weekend. We have the weekend and the beginning of the week we tend to think as Monday. I'm going to spend more time uh, next Lord's Day talking about that because he's going to bring this up a number of times. I, but I'll just ask you this question. Why is it? Where did that come from? We're going to talk about that a little bit um, next Lord's Day. I think it's something we need to press against. Well, what's going on here is we have um, this, this emphasis that the Jewish Sabbath, which was Saturday, ended the week. But Jesus rose on Sunday. 
on a new week, on the first day of the week. And we have worshipped as God's people ever since on the Lord's Day, commemorating each week as the new Sabbath, the new week, the new creation, Easter. Every Sunday is Easter celebration. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday again. Well, I'm going to walk you through the first 10 verses here, give you a little outline as you, as you want, if you'd like to follow along in the text or in my outline. Early Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been rolled away. That's verse 1. She hurries to Peter and John and tells them that someone must have stolen the body. Verse 2 and 3. And, and there were accounts of grave robbers in those days. And, and she might have been worried that, they, that somebody would have stolen a, a famous person's body like Jesus, somebody who had been known to many as a rabbi, taken his body and tried to use portions of his body to create some kind of a magic potion or something like that that they would then when sell. Or the other problem would be if, uh, uh, if, if she was concerned that the Romans or the Jews that had hated Jesus would have taken the body and desecrated it even further, which would have been just an abomination um, to, uh, to the, in the Jewish mindset. So she, she's afraid that, that someone has stolen this body. Um, Peter and John, she goes and tells, Peter and John rush to the grave, and John runs faster, getting there first, but, he, but does not go in. Peter then gets there and goes straight into the tomb, seeing the linen cloths lying there and the head cloth folded up and laid aside. And, and at least this tells us most likely we don't have a grave robbery going on here. It would take, they've left, they've left the linen cloths, they've left a hundred pounds of spices, expensive spices, and, and, and unwrapped it all to get the body. No, if, if they were going to steal the body, they would have just lifted the whole thing and left. So at least we see that, that the body has not, the body wasn't taken um, by someone. Um, and then, then there's these other things that the way the, the linen cloths are just lying right where he would have been laying, and then the, the head covering has been folded up and, and set to the side. John then comes in, sees the same, and believed, for they had not yet understood the scriptures foretold um, this. It says, and so there's this, uh, this end of this passage is saying that, uh, that John runs in, he sees, he, he sees and then believes that... Um, but it, it says he believes because of what he saw, not because of what he should have known. Verse 9, for as yet he, they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Psalm 16 verse 10 says, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That's probably the verse that you would point to that you see fulfilled in Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. His body did not see corruption. He was not left in Sheol. His soul went down to, spirit went down to, to Sheol, but he came back up and spirit and body raised from the dead. But probably there's even more than that. The scripture encapsulating as a whole, we'll see that in just a minute as, as well. John then writes that they left the scene. So we have an end of a scene here being set so that we can see particularly something that goes on with Mary. So first of all, I want to take a look at that resurrection and some of the things that I think John is bringing out. There's a, John is the one who also gave us the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead, his resurrection or resuscitation. And there's a stark contrast with the resurrection of Lazarus um, and, and the resurrection of Jesus. When Lazarus is called out by Jesus, do you remember what happens? Who, who comes, well, Lazarus comes out, but what, is, what, what are we told particularly? We're told that he comes out and he's still wrapped, arms and legs are wrapped and bound in the linen. 
So he somehow struggles his way out with, with still completely wrapped in his grave clothes. And Jesus has to command those to take the, take the grave clothes off, probably something they would have been at first uh, horrified to think about doing, this body that was now decaying four days in the, in the tomb. What's, what in the world is going on? So Jesus has to tell them, take the grave clothes off grave clothes off the guy. And so they take him off and they find out that he's been completely resuscitated and brought back to life. Well, so, um, and, and we're given that in, in, in chapter 11 of, of John. Jesus' body, instead, something else has happened. Jesus' body passed through the grave clothes, it, it appears, along with the hundred pounds of spices. They're just left there on, on the grave table that would have been there. Lazarus was dead and resuscitated, but what we see happening here is that Jesus passed through death and came forth with a resurrected body. So what happened? Well, we're not told, and we shouldn't speculate too much, but there's one other thing that happens, and it happens in the Gospel, um, in the, in the gospel of John later on in, uh, in, in verse 19. We're not going to get there until next Lord's Day, but it says in verse 19, then the same day at even evening, being the, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were ascend, assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst. And, and John wants to make this particular detail known. The doors are locked, and yet Jesus just appears. Well, how does he appear? It, it, it's possible, what we're learning is that we, um, in, in another gospel, he, he says, hey, I'm hungry. You got anything to eat? And they give him some fish and some bread so he can eat. So he has this real body. He's going to tell Thomas, go ahead, touch my body. Put your hands in my side. I'm real. Okay, so, so Jesus has a real body. So, so what happens? One of the things we learn is that a resurrected body is, is Jesus isn't walking around as a ghost. He's not a ghost figure. He's not a ghost figure because he can be touched. He can be held. He, he can eat. He can take food in. And, and so, uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis, may have been some others who, who speculated this, that, that it's not so much that we um, are less material when, when Jesus' body's not less material in the resurrection, but rather is more material. So, his, his body's not passing through these things because he's ghost-like, but that all of this reality <laughs> is more ghost-like than the final resurrection, that it's more real, that the resurrected body, this, and this is the hope of the resurrected body, right? The hope of the resurrected body is that it's more glorious. It's, in fact, it is glorious as opposed to our bodies. It, it's, it's, it's glorious. In that passage in, in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told our, our bodies are sown in corruption and raised in incorruption. They're sown in glorious and raised in great glory. And there's this great hope of the resurrection that we'll be more ourselves. You're going to be more of yourself. All of the sin, all of the, uh, all, all of the wickedness, all of the evil's gone. It's going to be completely washed. But you're going to be more of yourself. You're going to be more of everything God made you particularly to be. That's worth thinking about as, you, <coughs> as we study this resurrection of Christ. Now, I'm going to be a Greek nerd for just a minute. Okay? So I want you to bear with me. It's going to be worth it. I only do Greek nerd things when it's worth it. Okay? So if you have a Bible, I want you to follow along with me in these particular verses because I think there's an interesting progression of use of the words that are translated, he saw or she saw. Okay? There are three different words that, that, that are used here, and they re- if you consider them, they bring out a lot more of what's taking place, the drama of what is taking place. We're told in verse 1 that Mary Magdalene saw the stone rolled away. That word is blepo, and it means to look, 
and a C. That's it. Just look, look and saw. That's, it's just, I took in the fact. Okay? I saw that. Uh, so Mary Magdalene saw the stone rolled away. And then also we have John who comes up and he, remember, he stops outside the grave and he looks and saw, again, blepo, the linen cloth clothes lying there. Peter runs past him in verse 6 into the tomb and saw the linen cloths. But that's a different word. The word there is theoreo, and, and the word means to see and to wonder and to theorize. I, I saw, you know, I saw the sun rising this morning, which probably means more than I saw the sunrise, but I saw the sun rising this morning. I'm going to tell you something about it. I, I thought about it. This is where we get our word to theorize, to think about, to wonder at, okay? So John goes in, or Peter goes in, and he saw, he wonders over the linen cloths. Then John goes in also and saw and believed. Now that word is oida. And that is, um, that word really means to understand or to know. That's what you say when after I tell you something incredible and you say, oh, I see. Right? You don't mean that you saw. You mean that you understand now. You came to the knowledge of. We use the word see in those kinds of different ways. But John has them laid out here for you see this progression from just seeing, just noticing, to wondering, considering, to knowing, understanding, I see. And it's going to continue on um, as well. So, for as yet they did not know the scripture. Now, this makes a little more sense when I get to that verse, that verse 9. Um, so he saw, he oida, he knew and believed, and then it says, for as yet they did not see, you probably in your translation it says no, but it's the same word. So, so John saw, but he did not yet see. John saw, John knew and believed, Jesus rose from the dead, for they did not yet see or know the scriptures already told us that that's what was going to happen, that that's what we should have understood. That's what, that's what he is pointing out here. In, in Luke's gospel, Luke mentions that Jesus meets up with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then, they, and then they meet together, and Jesus begins to explain the scriptures to them. Then later on, he's with the apostles as well, and it says in Luke chapter 24, it says, Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets... He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Later on, verse 44 of the same chapter, he says, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding. He opened their understanding so they could see, it says, so that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And so what Jesus what John's pointing out is they didn't yet see that until later on, either that day or, or, or a little while later, Jesus meets with them and expounds to them the scriptures. And he tells them from the law and from the Psalms and from the prophets, don't you see here? Don't you see there? Don't you see here? It was all leading up to Christ. You, you, you can't believe in the Old Testament and not believe in Jesus Christ without misunderstanding the Old Testament. The Old Testament just points over and over again to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, coming, of him dying, 
of him paying for our sins, of him suffering for us, and then for him raise, being raised from the dead. And Jesus brings all this together, and, he, and it's as though he says, which, which he does say a couple times, you, I've been telling you over and over again, he told him, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, and on the third day I'll rise again. And they're like, what's he talking about? And it's not until Jesus says, wait, turn with me to Deuteronomy. Wait, 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 turn with me to Leviticus. No, no, I want you to see in Psalm 16. No, come here. I want you to see what Isaiah says. No, wait, wait, come here. Look what Malachi says. And he takes them through. And that's why I was telling you, you need to be in the word. Because we as Christians, by his spirit, God takes us through the word and he continues to show us, reveal to us, tie things together, make sense of this world around you by means of his spirit given word to us. That's what Jesus was doing there, and, that, and that's what he continues to do in the preaching and reading and giving of his word. So Jesus shows the disciples how they had not seen or known what the scriptures foretold. That's a resurrection. That's the empty tomb. But, but that wouldn't have been enough. John, John has been speaking creation language. John has been speaking wedding language all throughout. John has been speaking of, uh, of, I want you to see the fulfillment of Old Testament things in Christ and his new people over and over again. And so he gives us this other story, a story that only he gives of Mary Magdalene seeing the risen Lord in the garden. Mary Magdalene, Magdalene is not her last name. It really is Mary of Magdala. Mary of Magdala. There's so many Marys that apparently they'd make sure that you know which one we're talking about. So this is Mary of Magdala. Magdala is a town on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So she probably grew up and is from that same area that Jesus ministers to up in, in Galilee. And she shows up um, in the Gospels at the time of the empty tomb and the resurrection, but nowhere else except in Luke chapter 8 where we are told that she had been possessed by seven demons and that she was one of the women of financial means who supported Christ in his ministry. Other than that, we, we don't know anything else directly about Mary Magdalene. But where it shows up in Luke, in Luke chapter 8, the, the, the story right before is the story of the, sin, the, the woman who is a sinner, most likely meaning that she was a prostitute or had been a prostitute, and she had come, and she is weeping over Jesus, and then she's wiping his feet with her tears, and he has this discourse with the Pharisee about that, you recall, in, in Luke chapter 7. And because of that placement in Luke, it has been popularly thought that she was the fallen sinner who had washed the feet of Christ with her tears. So we do know for sure that she was one who had been delivered from seven spirits, uh, seven evil spirits, um, and that most likely she was this woman, possibly she was this woman who had been the former prostitute who has now come to Christ. And so because of that, in English, the word Magdalene has, has, has now taken on its own meaning, meaning a reformed prostitute. In fact, Magdalene houses in, in England, in Britain, um, centuries before, there were Magdalene houses that were set up, and Magdalene houses were set up as a ministry to former prostitutes. This word Magdalene has just come to mean a reformed prostitute. Well, this is who we have here then. We have Mary Magdalene in the garden. She's one who's been delivered of seven wicked spirits and possibly uh, of a sordid past as well. Mary returns to this tomb, and she um, is weeping outside the tomb in verse 11. She stoops down and saw, and this one is theoreo, she wondered, she considered, 
as she saw two angels on either side of where Jesus had lain. Well, what's she considering? What is she seeing here? Well, this is a picture of the mercy seat found in the center of the temple. Exodus 25, 19. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end, and you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it one piece with an empty mercy seat. You have an empty mercy seat, and two cherubs on, on either side of the length of, of this seat. That's the way that the temple, the very center of the temple, the Holy of Holies, is the mercy seat. And if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, you might recall that the Hebrew word for mercy seat is the place of propitiation. And that Um, Hebrews 2.17 tells us that Jesus made propitiation for his people. What does she look in and see? (laughs) Well, she sees that what she had grown up never being able to see, because only the the high priest, only once a year, could go into the Holy of Holies. And there's the mercy seat right there. What she sees is that the heart of the temple was actually a prophecy of Easter. The heart of the temple was actually a prophecy of Easter. Mary was seeing the real mercy seat, but she hadn't seen it yet. She saw, but she didn't yet see. And so she says um, in verse 13, they ask her, woman, why are you weeping? And she says to them again, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they had laid him. She did not yet know what she was seeing. The angels ask her why she's weeping, and then she turns around And again, it says, she saw, she saw Jesus, but she did not know, oida, it was Jesus, verse 14. Okay, that's my last Greek nerdy thing. Okay, so just look at verse 14, because it's cool. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and she saw, wow, look at this. There's the gardener. What's he doing here? She saw Jesus, something's not right, but did not know, did not see that it was Jesus. Until what? Until what happened? John, John reminds us that we're in a garden by noting that Mary thought Jesus was a gardener. And he sets us up for another creation passage here. This is, a, this is all creation language. Okay, John reminds us we're in the garden, noting that Mary thought Jesus was a gardener. And then Jesus spoke her name and everything changed. Just as Adam spoke the name and gave the name to Eve, so Jesus speaks Mary's name to her, and everything changes. This was not the gardener, but the good shepherd calling his sheep. Jesus said to himself in John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And so, what did we just see in this passage? We didn't just see, we didn't just see Mary coming to faith. We see the new Eve being brought to the new Adam. We see the bride coming to Christ. We see Christ calling his bride in types, in types. In the first garden, Adam and Eve were brought together, and every marriage since is a picture of Christ and the church, right? Quoting from Genesis, Paul writes, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. In every wedding, we say this in every wedding, what you're looking at is a picture of Christ and the church. We're all types in this way. But Mary and Jesus were a particular type. If in the new garden, where the new temple rose and the new creation began, Jesus calls for his bride typologically. 
The story of fallen man, and especially of fallen Israel, is the story of harlotry, spiritual adultery, idolatry, demon possession, and bondage to sin, all the result of rebellion against the Lord of all. That's, that's the woman Jesus went to get. The, G, the woman Jesus went to get was a woman who was full of seven spirits, who was unclean, who was immoral, who was uh, distasteful to all, of the, um, to all of the Pharisees and the legalists and the religious types. That's who Jesus went after. The ones, the ones who knew they were far too dirty to be able to come before God. That's who Jesus went. That's the bride of Christ. And the story of the, of the gospel is the story of the father preparing just such a bride for his son by means of his son's loving sacrifice for her. One preacher said these things. It's worth repeating. In the story of creation, Adam and Eve met in a garden. In the story of redemption, Jesus met Mary in a garden. In the garden, Adam met a woman with a disreputable future. Christ met a woman with a disreputable past. We must always remember this because we are so prone to forget it. And when we forget it, when we forget our name of Magdalene, we usually do so in one of two ways. We either become self-righteous because we have forgotten our past, or we are guilt-ridden because we have forgotten our future. But through his holy word, God wants us to dwell on these things. One of the most important women in the Bible is this woman, Mary Magdalene. The angels spoke to her first. After the resurrection, the Lord Jesus appeared to her first. The messages were sent to the other disciples through her. Her devotion was extraordinary. Standing at the cross, sitting across from the sepulcher, marking the spot, appearing at the tomb first with spices for the body, speaking to the angels first, and seeing the risen Lord first. This woman was truly remarkable, and she has given us her name. We are Magdalene. And there's an important application, I think, in the Christian church today. There are many, many Christian women and, and men who are tormented by their sexual past. Tormented by, from what they used to do. They know academically that they're forgiven, but they have trouble rejoicing in that forgiveness. And oftentimes, the church has trouble truly forgiving and welcoming them in. This is not because of anything in scriptures, but rather because of many false assumptions current in the church that tends to think it's really, really a clean place. And it is not. And these false assumptions betray our misunderstanding of the nature of grace. We constantly want to earn to have a pride of place. But always remember, when the Son of God came to earth to find a bride for himself, the woman that his father had chosen for him, the choice, when it was revealed, astounded the prude and self-righteous religious types. The Father and Son and the Spirit are altogether holy, and so the woman who is chosen must become holy. We must become holy. But the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are also full of grace, and the woman who is chosen was called out from her idols, from her lovers, from her past, from her immoralities, and the Son loved her and loves her still. Are you a Christian woman whose past declares this? Then rejoice in the power of forgiveness and in the glory of our redemption. And may we be a people who remember to welcome just as Jesus welcomes those who, who have sordid pasts, those who the, the rest of society may, may never welcome in, but we would welcome them in in a moment. 
because Jesus would welcome in in grace and forgiveness fully and completely, just as he has you and I. But Jesus isn't marrying. He's not actually marrying Mary Magdalene. It's, it's a typological, it's a symbol. Something, in order for that to happen, he is going to have to still ascend and he's going to pour out his spirit. And that's when the consummation begins or the betrothal begins, final consummation at the, at the resurrection. And so I think that's, there's this next verse, verse 17, um, you can find scores and scores and scores of interpretation ideas. This verse 17, Jesus says, do not cling to me for I have, have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, why, why does he not want her to cling to her? There's like some old commentary, I mean, way, way in the past said, well, it was because he was naked. I don't know where he got his clothes, but I don't think Jesus was naked. I don't think that's what's going on here. Well, he couldn't be touched because he had to wait until he was ascended before something more holy took place. Well, the problem is in the very next passage, he's going to welcome Thomas to touch his side. He's going to fellowship with those brothers. As far as we know, there's hugs all around as Jesus is there. So I think that in the typology, what is still going on is he is saying, this is not going to happen yet until I ascend and the Spirit is sent. So he still must ascend, and then through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, his bride, the church, will then be united to him, will then cling to him in word and sacrament. That union means his disciples will now be his brethren, though. So he says, I, he says uh, instead, I want you to go to my brethren and say to them. I, I didn't go back and check, but I think this is the first time that Jesus calls the disciples his brethren. And this is also where he will say, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And so there's this switch here to, um, to the metaphor of adoption. We have become, we have been brought to the father because Jesus, our elder brother, has brought us to him and the father has adopted us. Ephesians 1.5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Or John 1.12, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Don't you see in this passage the, the, the call of the Apostle John to you through the story of the resurrection of Jesus to truly grow, not just in the hope of the one day resurrection, but in the gift, the intimate union that we enjoy in Christ that we can call God our Father just as Jesus calls him his Father. Now, he's, he's Jesus' Father from eternity past and forever, but he's our Father through adoption, through Christ. That, that just as Jesus calls him God, so we are invited to go and call him our God, in covenant with our God, and we be his people. Invited to understand that as lost as you might have felt, maybe as lost as you feel today in this world, that if you are in Christ, you've been adopted into a family, to the perfect father and family of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you're not alone and never will be alone. That you have, you have that, that, that as, as he takes us through these trials and tribulations here, it's all being used only to perfect that union that we will enjoy forever and ever. Don't you see that you're being called, that you're being summoned to the one who's calling you, 
by your own personal name because he knows you personally. Just as he said to Mary, Mary, and she knew. So Jesus calls you by name individually, even though we are the church corporately, the bride of Christ corporately, he calls you individually by name. And, and if you hear Jesus' words in that way, if you see Jesus, if you see Jesus and not just, just see and, and wander off, not just see and wonder with the philosophers for a little while, but you see and know what the scriptures have promised you, what the scriptures have promised you, then you've seen the mercy seat. You've seen propitiation. You've seen God's wrath taken away from you. You see and know and are to feel forgiveness for your sins. Guilt gone. And everlasting hope is yours. That's what the resurrection proclaims. To everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. To everyone who believes. And so, what happens in the end of this passage, Magdalene, the church, what does the church then go and do? She goes and tells. She goes and tells the world. She goes and tells the disciples. And then, and then we're told by Jesus, go and tell the world. Go disciple nations, he says. I don't want just a few handful here and there. Go disciple the nations. I'm taking them all. Because we take the Bible seriously, because we take God seriously, because we take God's holiness seriously, we must be very careful that we do not forget to take his grace and his mercy and his love very seriously, more seriously. Paul would say in Romans chapter 5 that where, where sin abounded, and my goodness, sin abounds, does it not? But he says where sin abounded, grace abounded far more. Grace wins. Grace wins. You, you look out in the world and you see a tomb. You see a grave. You see deadness. You see the results of sin. You see the consequences of sin all around you. And you're to turn and look. Turn and look and see Jesus is right there. He is raised from the dead. He is, he is taken to himself and upon himself your sin. And he says, the sin of the world, and drawing all men to myself, and we're to make of that what we, what we can, with a great optimistic hope that he's going to save this wretched, dark place. It's his bride. She's a mess still today. But it's his bride, and he will sanctify her all the way to the end. So the church goes out and cries out, we've been forgiven, we've been cleansed, we've been made new, and we are betrothed. She speaks the very word of Christ, and by that word, the nations are being discipled. And by that word, every, every disreputable sin for any sinner can be cleansed. Every body can be healed. Every mind can be restored. Every spirit reunited with the Spirit of God because our Redeemer lives, because Jesus died and rose again. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our God and our Father... Let the grace of this gospel penetrate every heart and soul here. Bring salvation and assurance of your grace. For Jesus has risen from the dead. Our sins are paid for and forgiven. And new life, eternal life, is ours for the taking. Grant us a lifestyle of thankfulness as we walk in this new life, now awaiting our own final bodily resurrection as well. Grant us confidence to tell the world, as Mary told her, the disciples, Jesus is risen. He's risen and everything is new. For we ask and pray it in Jesus' name, amen.